Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm James Pickford, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights on the stories that matter. John Ruskin was a towering figure during his lifetime, an art critic, social reformer and all-round thinker who had a huge influence on British society in the Victorian era. After his death, he fell out of favour, his works went out of print and he was all but forgotten. Yet much of what he wrote about the nature of work and the importance of protecting the environment is more relevant than ever. In the bicentennial year of his birth, I'm joined by Sandra Kemp, a curator and director of the Ruskin Museum at Lancaster University. We're also joined by Andrew Hill, our management editor, who has written a book, Ruskinland, looking at John Ruskin's legacy today. Sandra, Ruskin was an extraordinary polymath, wasn't he? Could you tell us a bit about the man and some of his most notable achievements? Ruskin was one of the leading thinkers of his age. He was an extraordinarily talented writer and artist and draftsman, but he also inspired some of the great social reformers of the 20th century, from Gandhi to the architects of the welfare state. He was also an early environmentalist. Um, He emphasised our need to protect the natural world, laying the foundations of the National Trust as we know it today recording the built landscape of Venice through photography and drawing. He was amongst the first to spotlight the ecological danger to the city of Venice and campaign for its protection. And perhaps finally, and in my view, most importantly of all, he was a really compelling educator who connected knowledge to the pulse of everyday life and to the intimacy of personal experience. For me, that's what marks him out as one of the greatest thinkers of all time. People seem to know a lot about Ruskin's personal life. and He had a troubled emotional life, didn't he? Is that changing? Well, one of the reasons I think why people became suspicious, if you like, of Ruskin was because an obsession developed almost in the middle of the 20th century with his personal circumstances. He had a failed marriage, annulled for incurable impotency with Effie Gray, which came to dominate partly because a number of myths circulated and rumours circulated about why the marriage had failed. Frankly, we will never know. And he was a very troubled man, because of a number of failed emotional relationships, including that one. And eventually his health broke down. He spent the last decade or so more or less reclusively away in the Lake District, not speaking or speaking only monosyllabically to visitors. I think one of the things that's happened in this bicentenary year and which people like Sandra at the Ruskin are doing is to bring to the forefront a number of these strikingly modern and relevant ideas that he was producing even through this troubled life. And if you like, in my view, and I'm obviously a fan overall, writing the balance and making sure that the best ideas and work of Ruskin comes to the fore and is linked very clearly to some of our very modern preoccupations in a way that he would have recognised as a vital part of what he was doing. Well, it does sound like he had an awful lot going for him. So I suppose the question is, Andrew, why did he fall out of favour? Well, he died in 1900. And one of the reasons is that he was a victim in some senses of his own success. Quite a lot of the things that he campaigned for in social reform on areas like working hours and conditions, educational reform, even city planning were things that within 20 years of his death had already come about. So the campaigning zeal that he brought to that had actually had an effect, even though 
towards the end of his life, he was worried that he wasn't being listened to. I think the other key reason why he fell out of favour in the early 20th century was the First World War, which clearly blasted this chasm through everything that had gone before and led to a generation that had lost so much in that war, the younger generation, renouncing everything that had to do with old bearded Victorians, which is what he was by the end of his life, although clearly had a much more radical influence. So to that extent, within about 25 years of his death, his influence was beginning to wane. And by the 1950s, there were even people in Sheffield, one of the cities that he had a vast influence on, who didn't know who he was, let alone what he had actually done. Can I reverse a little back to the beginning of his career, where he starts as an art critic? How does one transform from being an art critic and an artist to being a social reformer? Well, it looked like a big switch in about 1860 when he suddenly started to take issue with the orthodox economics of the day. He was chipping away at the foundations, blasting away at the foundations of industrial capitalism. And that looked like a big turnaround from having been a controversial but essentially focused art critic. In fact, the thread that runs through all of this was a growing preoccupation with the happiness of workers and with the ability of happy workers to produce better work. And this comes out very strongly through his championing of, for example, the pre-Raphaelites in the early part of his career, whose workmanship and meticulousness he admired, and particularly in a lot of what he wrote about Venice and about Gothic architecture, where he saw in the creativity of the anonymous workers on cathedrals and some of the great Venetian buildings like the Doge's Palace, he saw the influence of their enjoyment of their work in the creativity of what they produced. And so there is this continuous thread running through the first part and the second part of his career. Sandra, we understand his importance as an art critic. He was also a painter. He had very specific ideas on truth and beauty and how one understands those things and the importance of seeing in art. Can you give us a sense of his contribution to the arts? Yes. So Ruskin once said, the teaching of art is the teaching of all things. And what we might today call close looking or slow looking, so intense processes of visual communication. Ruskin rather wonderfully put it, the eye stretched out like a four-cornered sheet is at the heart of his work. So he believed that visual communication, drawing, modelling, that the hand was the instrument of new forms of consciousness. So he believed that new forms of thought and expression were made possible through the visual. And he was really interested in the kinds of knowledge and understanding or information that is invoked through images. So all of his work was more and more to focus on intense processes of visual observation. At the same time, however, I think what's the hallmark of so much of Ruskin is his lasting belief that art should have a direct relationship to the world in which we live and which he believed was the source of all knowledge and understanding and indeed well-being. So, Andrew, when we turn to his views on the world of work, which of his views do you think are most relevant today, if any? Well, I think he was very much involved in thinking about the happiness of the worker, as I've mentioned. 
and this is very relevant today, we begin to hear more in what I write about as management editor and columnist, more people talking about happiness and enjoyment and well-being at work. And even in teaching drawing, as Sandra's pointed out, he said that he was not so much interested in teaching carpenters to draw, which he did at the Working Men's College in London, but in making them happier carpenters. So he very much was ahead of his time in that sense of bringing an idea of enjoyment of work into workplaces which were far more brutal than any we know of today. But I think there is relevance in lots of the areas of the new economy, the gig economy, even the internet economy. A talk I was at recently, Amazon was raised as a company that is arguably doing to the automation of the worker what the industrial capitalists of the late 19th century were doing and which Ruskin was complaining about. And I think some of these insights into work, which management thinkers today are starting to discuss, were already there in the way in which he was looking at the kind of work done in the far more industrial age of the second half of the 19th century. And Sandra, when we look at academia today, it tends to be quite specialised, doesn't it? But of course, Ruskin is the very antithesis of this by being across so many subjects and having so many interests and using those in interesting ways to come up with new ideas. Is there anything to be learnt there in terms of this awful phrase, interdisciplinary cooperation? Yeah, I think Ruskin had a much better way of putting it. He called it four-sided or polygonal thinking. He said mostly matters of any consequence are three-sided, four-sided or polygonal He also wrote somewhere else that people should rethink or really seriously reconsider their opinions every five years. And I think one of the lessons that could be learned today is that Ruskin always connected his art to, as Andrew was just saying, social and political action. And he believed across all areas, whether it was what today we'd call sciences or social sciences or arts or the economy, that we shouldn't be passive, that we tend to be immobilised by some areas. But in fact, sciences and arts are shaped by us and we can change them. And I think rather wonderfully, his motto, which he had inscribed on his notebooks, many of them, rather beautifully, was today. And he believed that the way we see things now will form the way we think and behave in the future. So the future for Ruskin, he was the first to try new technologies. So, for example, when the daguerreotype came along, he called it the most wonderful invention of the 19th century. But at the same time, he was powerfully aware of the dehumanising and immobilising potential of technology and the impact of industrialization on the health of the planet in ways that really, I think, speak powerfully to our own work across many areas of study and disciplines. So one of the beautiful um, mobilising forces of his work is an emphasis on change and transformation, which he called the laws of life. And he constantly moved, not just across disciplines, but across media. So he tested something in writing, then through 
the iridescence of colour, then through using a cyanometer to measure the blueness of the clouds or a daguerreotype photograph, which when he was looking at Venice, he claimed he could see details in the photograph that he couldn't even see with the naked eye. And I think for Ruskin, it was incredibly important never to settle and never to fix, but to use every form of thinking and communication and representation to move forward. Thanks very much, Sandra. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks to you for listening. For those who'd like to know more, the Ruskin at Lancaster University is unveiling a new exhibition, Ruskin, Museum of the Near Future. Don't forget, if you missed our episodes on China's efforts to curb its emissions, Edward Snowden's memoirs, or the breakdown of talks between the US and the Afghan Taliban, you can find them on all the usual podcast platforms.